Can you turn me down? Thank you. Welcome to church. Um, yeah, welcome to church. And if you uh, celebrate Lunar New Year, happy uh, second day of the new year. Now, I'm going to show you three pictures, and I'd love for you to try and figure out what's in common with all of them. So here we go. I'm going to turn this on. And Okay, what have we got there? We've got a tiger. We've got a helicopter. And we've got a bulldozer. Just quickly with the people around you for 30 seconds. Someone try and find something in common with all this. Go. Oh, I actually heard the answer. I heard the answer. I heard the answer. I heard the answer. Caroline, what did you think it was? They're all outside. Uh, more specifically, Clem. Clem would know, wouldn't he? Yeah, someone told him. I heard you say parenting. Let's just go with that one, okay? Parenting. Yes, all of them are styles of parenting. Have you heard of tiger parenting? Have you heard of helicopter parenting? And maybe you haven't heard of bulldozer parenting. Okay, what's tiger parenting? Tiger parents push children really hard to succeed and succeed according to the parents' definition of succeed. Okay, so that's tiger parenting. Uh, what about helicopter parenting? Well, the helicopter parent hovers over their kids all the time and so they take control of every aspect over their kids' lives. They don't let them do anything that's potentially uh, unsafe or anything that's helicopter parenting. And then there's the bulldozer parent. They remove every obstacle to make life as easy as possible for the child. Now, what are the results of this kind of parenting? Well, for the tiger parenting, I mean, there's advantages, I guess, but one of the sad results is children often grow really resentful. So if you've had a tiger parent, you might remember feeling really resentful that you had to succeed or um, in the way that you were pushed to succeed. It wasn't one, what you really wanted to do. Helicopter parenting, that creates children who are generally pretty anxious and needy because they're not allowed to make mistakes or have a go. Bulldozer parenting, well, the children become fairly entitled, don't they? Because all the difficult things are always removed in front of them and they become a little bit narcissistic. The world revolves around them. Now, they're obviously not, uh, they're all different sorts of parenting that we don't want to adopt, especially out in the West. But really, what's also in common in all of these parenting styles is that they feel a need to control, right? It's all about having control. Now, why do parents want to control? Well, it's because, and those of you who are parents, you'll know this, until you have kids, you don't realize how much you want to control, but just simply can't. Isn't that right? Because these are the people you love the most. And so you want to protect them. You want to help them. And then as they grow up, especially through the teenage years, you want to control them, but you realize, oh, they are really out of my control. Well, today we're talking about control. I'm sure it's not news to you that anxiety is on the rise all over the Western world. Surveys and studies have shown it again and again. The rise in prescription medication emergency room visits for anxiety, workplace stress, workplace burnout, sleep disorders. And if you ask why anxiety is on the rise, one of the big reasons is because life feels so out of control, doesn't it? World events, 
COVID, wars, the environment, the economy, our cost of living. Or, or personally, it's, it's unemployment, it's illness, it's broken relationships, it's loneliness. Now, how do you deal with this? Like, how, how's your, let me ask you, how's your day-to-day anxiety? Well, one way to deal with this is accept that the world is out of control and learn to just move on. So we get that in philosophy. Uh, there's a school of thought called Stoicism from the ancient Greeks. You get that in religions. Um, Buddhism is a lot about that. Uh, and obviously, psychology. Right? And, and then you recognize that we are not in control of most things. And look, stop trying to be. Right? Don't be the tiger parent or the helicopter parent. or the hel- Just stop trying to control. Control what you can, right? and that's control yourself, control your responses, your thinking. Don't try to control what you can't. Those things that you can't control, you accept it, you move on. Now, this is good. These are, this is good advice. That's a good truth to live by. In fact, that's kind of what I tell myself in most daily situations. I ask myself, what can I control? I'll work on those. What can't I control? Learn to let go of those. And maybe that's what you do too. And it works. But it only works to a certain extent. Let me tell you two reasons why, on its own, this truth isn't strong enough, good enough to handle all of life situations. And the first reason is because life is complex. There are many things in life are not that simple. There's what I can control versus what I can't control. And they're in two separate buckets. Let me give you a thought experiment. I've been thinking about this maybe a little bit too much. But you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was that $200 million jackpot, you know, the Powerball. And it got me thinking, imagine winning that much money. Just for a moment, imagine if you won two hundred million dollars. That's an interesting test case, isn't it? Because it appears that winning the lottery, and people want to win the lottery, in fact, they tell us to buy a lottery ticket, because once you buy the lottery ticket, then you are taking financial control, right? You've got security. On the, on the surface, it seems like winning that much money gives you control that you may not have had before, and yet, let's really think about it. You just win $200 million tomorrow. Right? That much money. Yes, some anxieties are gone, but let's admit it, there's a new set of anxieties, isn't there? Right? $200 million now in my bank account. How do I keep that money secure? Because you know what? I mean, I'm not talking about banks and stuff, but once, you, once people know you've got $200 million in the bank, everyone wants a piece, don't they? Every, and, and so how do I make decisions of who do I help? How do I make decisions of how I can best invest this money? And then how do I control myself? Because I could really easily let my spending and my appetites take over. And that would be a disaster. And so when it comes to this $200 million jackpot, it's not that easy, is it, to figure out what you can control versus what you can't control. And statistically, you'll need to know jackpot winners end up miserable or broke or both. Something like 70% end up broke within seven years after winning a jackpot. Can you believe that? The line between what you can and can't control in a lot of circumstances in life, and this is just a test case, is really not that easy to, right, to figure out. But the second reason is this. What happens when the very worst thing you can imagine happens to you? 
right? When the very worst thing you can imagine happens to you, does the control what you can control, don't control what you can't control, does that, is that enough? So I wonder what it is for you as you imagine what the worst thing is. I'll tell you for my friends, Adrian and Deb, what it was for them. On the 25th of January, a few weeks ago, on a trip to New Zealand on holidays, their 10-year-old daughter, Tegan, falls into a river at Milford Sound. And instantly, she's carried through the fast-moving waters downstream. Her father, Adrian, you can imagine this, running alongside the banks, yelling at her just to grab something while screaming for help, while praying and pleading to God until he couldn't follow her anymore. And then they find her downstream. A few people try to perform CPR, but they're unable to revive her. Tegan was 10 years old. For most of us, the worst thing that happens to us is probably not we, we ourselves dying. It's, it's something like this, isn't it? That, that would be something like the worst thing to happen to me. Now, when something of this magnitude happens and your world literally collapses, that kind of mantra, control what you can, can't, don't control what you can't, it just seems, let's admit it, that seems a bit weak, doesn't it? Yeah? I want to tell you today that we need something more to be the foundation of that truth. I am not in control. Like, I agree with it. But it needs to be something more underneath it. See, if there is no God, if there's only natural selection or luck and chance, then that truth, I want to suggest, is much too weak to stand on its own. If that's all we've got and there is no God and I've just got to be left to luck and chance and natural selection, well, let, let me tell you this. When it comes to my kids, you can sign me up to be a tiger parent or a helicopter parent or bulldozer parent because I'd rather that. I want to show you today that Jesus provides that foundation, something more, something solid beneath that truth, and that's what we need. So, after my second point, we're going to look at this storm, the passage that we just read, and let's have a look again, because this is such an interesting story, isn't it? And it's a true account of what happened. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Um, these are seasoned fishermen, by the way, Jesus' disciples, his followers. They encountered a storm that made them scared for their lives. Okay, So this is not a bit of seasickness. Like when Karen and I went on our honeymoon 23 years ago, uh, we went out on a boat um, from... from from the Whit Sundays to, yeah, to, to, to the reef. And we had to go on open water and we got seasick. Uh, but this isn't like that. That's just normal seasickness going out to the open sea. This is such a degree that seasoned fishermen were afraid for their lives. You can imagine what kind of storm this was. But then in verse 38, look at what it says there. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I want to stop with that question for a moment because it reveals a couple of things. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I think it reveals two deeper questions. And the first question is, is God great enough? See, perhaps they wanted Jesus to get up and help them row. Or perhaps they thought that Jesus could at least care enough to panic with them or, or pray with them. 
Or they've known Jesus for a little while. Now perhaps he could do some miracle to make it easier for them to navigate through the storm. But of course, what ended up happening was something they didn't predict. And the fact that they were so amazed at what Jesus ended up doing, that it was a shock to them, that they weren't ready for what Jesus actually did, shows that in their eyes, at least at that point, Jesus was not great enough. Yeah? He was great, but not great enough. See, I am not in control as a truth, as I said, is not enough on its own to handle all the complexities and all the enormities of life. The only way it's enough as a truth is behind it if there is a God who is completely in control. If there is a God who is great enough that, as Jesus says, He's in control of the number of hairs on your head or the birds that fall from the sky. He's in control of everything, big or small, every accident, every disaster, every sickness, every life that is born and dies. He is absolutely 100% in control of. See, what if you could encounter a God that's far greater than you ever thought? So in control, even in the midst of life storms, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be enough for you to maybe sleep better, even in the storm? So that's the first question. They didn't really believe that God was great enough. Well, what about the second one? Remember they asked, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? See, the, the cause of anxiety is not only when we doubt God's greatness, whether he's in control, it's also when we doubt God's goodness. Does he care? You see, on its own, God's greatness isn't enough comfort, is it? Like, you could believe that God is completely in control, in control over my terrible exam results, over my parents' divorce, over my friend's cancer, over my depression. But knowing them on its own, well, that could just show that he doesn't care about me, right? He's great, but he's not good. And if he's great, but he's not good, then you are still anxious and you're still worried. Because while you might pray, it's more like trying to plea bargain with God, right? Or trying to manipulate God. If you do this, God, maybe I'll do that. But at the end, you're still anxious if God is great but not good. But what if you could encounter a God that is good, so good, so on your side, so loving and caring and tender in his dealings with you, that even in the worst of things, that he is still working out a good purpose for you because he loves you. Like if you can encounter a God that is that good, wouldn't you worry less? And wouldn't you really be able to surrender control to him? Even when things look dark, because you know that he does care. You see, the disciples of Jesus, like us, we need to encounter the greatness and the goodness of God. I need to go to the next slide. And in that boat, on that day, they did encounter God like that. Uh, but firstly, I want to just firstly pause on Jesus, because Jesus in this situation is our model, right? You encounter the perfect man in Jesus in this story. He models perfect trust in God's greatness, in God's goodness, no matter what storm he was in. Uh, remember verse 37, a furious squall came up, the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. What was Jesus doing? 
Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. In the midst of a storm, Jesus was asleep. Why? What he was about to do to the wind and the waves, it started from within. He was perfectly still, and in a moment he would perfectly still the world outside of him. It started from inside him. Jesus, as the perfect man, trusted God perfectly. And he would maintain that perfect trust in God's greatness and goodness, even when his biggest personal storm came. We'll look at that a little bit more in a moment. His last words on the cross would be, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. This is the perfect man modeling perfect trust. But I want you to also know that we don't just encounter the perfect man in this story, we encounter the perfect God. So have a look again. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And then this is the climax, isn't it? He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the winds died down and it was completely calm. He stills it. With a word. Now, those who know the Bible would read this not simply as a miracle of a great man. You would know that the kind of things Jesus does here, it's said of what only God does. So let me show you from the ancient Psalms, written at least a few hundred to a thousand years maybe before Jesus. And this is talking about God. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the Father sees, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. And notice this, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. On the boat that day, they encountered not just a great man, not just the perfect man. They encountered the creator of the universe, the same God who spoke the galaxies into existence, the same God who parted the Red Sea before his people. No wonder his creation recognized his voice and obeyed instantly. See, that day, Jesus' disciples encountered God in their midst. (laughs) Here's the funny thing when you encounter God. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The seas have died down now. And look at verse 41. They were terrified. Ah, I thought it was scary when the seas were raging. But what happens when you have God on your boat? That's kind of even more terrifying, right? They ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But they encountered God. Today, friends, is an invitation to encounter Jesus. And in encountering him, see that you don't need to be in control because God is both great and good. And it's not even in this episode that you see it supremely. You see it even more, I hinted at before, you see it more at the end of his life, at the end of Mark's biography of Jesus. Um, The forces of evil men, Satan himself, rise up against the Son of God and Jesus is betrayed, he's tortured, and he is crucified. That really is the greatest tragedy in human history, right? You think about it. God, the creator, comes to his beloved creation and he is nailed to a cross by the very people he created. It seems like this is the episode in the whole of history that is the most out of control, isn't it? Seems the most out of control and yet God has never been more in control. 
Seems that God's goodness couldn't be furthest away in the crucifixion of the Son of God, the perfect man, the innocent lamb. And yet, God has never displayed more goodness than in that episode. Because on the cross, Jesus, you see, chose to die. He let others take control of him. He let others nail his hands and feet to wood. He let evil win the day because only by dying, you see, could he defeat evil once and for all. By dying, he took our guilt and our shame in our place, all that stands between us and the perfect God, and he pays it all. And then rising from the dead three days later, he does what only God could do out of his greatness which is to forgive sin and to bring eternal life to people who are like you and me, sinners. And then he shows that the goodness of God will always triumph no matter how dark things appear. That even in the darkness of the man Jesus, the God Jesus crucified, that is the goodness of God most on display. Because it says, as the Bible says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't he good to love us that much? So encounter him today. Encounter the God who is both great and good. And you will understand what it means not to have to be in control. You know what's the best way of doing that? You heard or you watched the video. Alpha, I'm hosting Alpha this time around. Starting March 10, I would love to have you over for dinner on a Sunday evening. We'll eat dinner together. It's all free, by the way. And there's limited numbers. My living room is only so big. Um, we'll eat, we'll chat, we'll watch a video, and we'll chat about it. And we'll do that for six weeks. If you'd like to come, especially if you're on your journey, right, to finding out more about Jesus, please, RSVP, uh, first in, I would love to have you along. Well, as I mentioned, my friends, uh, just a moment ago, Adrian and Deb. Well, yesterday, uh, they and their family, in fact, they and about 700 others, <laughs> celebrated Tegan's life in a wonderful, a tear-filled, but a hope-filled tribute. In the midst of tears, there was genuine, genuine joy and unkillable hope. Now, why is that? Why, why could they be so hopeful and even joyful in the midst of tears? Because my friends Adrian and Deb and Tegan have all genuinely encountered the God I just spoke about in Jesus. And if, in case you're wondering, they actually wanted me, they wanted others to be able to share all of this as a tribute to Tegan and as a tribute to their hope in Jesus. Um, I want to read to you what Deb wrote when they went to the funeral home a few days ago. Today we brought the rest of our family and closest friends to visit Tegan at the funeral home. It was tough, heart-wrenching. But with the suddenness of Tegan's death and departure from our world, such an important part of the grieving journey. Through tears and hugs, whispers and writing letters in her journal, we gathered around her casket and sat in this sadness together. For me, it was okay. I know where she is. But sorrow and another wave of pain washed over me in the thought again of whether she felt pain or fear in her fighting the waters. My baby girl ripped away from us in that instant. But quickly peace regained control of my heart and I felt her assurances that no, Jesus was with her in the waters and she is now safe, secure, no pain, no sorrow. 
It made me grapple with the reality and truth that none of us have a right, nor do we deserve, nor can we control our lifespan. Nowhere can we say we are entitled to live 80, 90 years. Every day is a gift. We don't know when our time will be up. All we have is the present and what we choose to do with it. Our families kicked on after visiting Tegan to have dinner together at a nearby Chinese restaurant. Our hearts somehow lighter and feeling God's peace in spite of sadness. And my sister was recalling our summer holiday and how blessed we were to have spent so much time together with Tegan. Gold Coast in December, the farm shortly after, the beach and the aqua park at my parents' place, the farm again, all these such precious memories to lock in our minds forever. Again, like a gift from God. He knew our time with Tegan was coming to an end. And he filled our hearts and our moments with reams of footage, material moments that we can all grasp and hold on to and cherish. A life that was full, that gave so generously. Wow, huh? I mean, did you notice so many things that I talked about today, just in those few paragraphs, she really captured it. Right? She, she said that we're not in control. No one has a right to expect or demand 80 or 90 years. Anything. Yeah, we are not in control. She got that. But, but did you notice what undergird that we are not in control truth? The greatness and the goodness of God. Didn't you hear that? The greatness and the goodness of God. They knew that even as their daughter was fighting for her life and eventually died, that God was in control and was great, and was good. And that even now as they grieve her loss, that God is in control, and He is great, and He is good. And so while they grieve and their hearts will ache, they can rejoice, they can have peace. See, this is what being in the boat through the storm with Jesus can do for you. Do you believe that? This can be true for you. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, this can be true for you. So, will you come and meet Him and get to know Him and make it true for you? Let me pray. Will you join me in speaking to God? Especially if this is something that you want to be true for you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Dear God, we find it so hard in the midst of life's anxieties and struggles, big and small, to let go of control. But you remind us today that you are great and you are good and we see it supremely in your son Jesus. We want to meet him. But not just know about him, we want to know him personally, we want to know him deeply. We want him to fill us. We invite him to come into our lives. If we haven't done that before, if we, if we've left that. Because only through him with us in the storms of life, as you promised for him to be with us, only through that can we have peace, can we have joy, can we have hope in the midst of grief. To know that you are great, that you are good, that you will never leave or abandon us. Lord, we want this and we need this.
And we ask you to give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.